Well, obviously, you have to start by saying happy birthday, Hashem. Thank you, Chirag. Yeah. Very kind of you. And thank you for your contribution to my um, birthday video. I know. That was a, that was a Very fun. much appreciated. Welcome. Your demeanor in the video, I mean, was that like happiness? I mean, like, give me like a quick, like, like. I actually, the, the, my entire focus. Were you reading? Like it was a teleprompter? No, my entire focus in the video was picking a background that would pop out at you. <laughs> that was the entire thing. That was the that entire worked. basis. So. It's good that you did that because I watched it on a big screen. Exactly. So, so yeah. The, Which the, you didn't know. It wasn't on a phone. Like I was like, and of course I have that video now. So I'm going to watch it again. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. The entire point was just, I was like, I need okay, something that, the- that like distracts him while i'm talking because that's like job well done yeah there we go so yeah so how does it feel it feels um honestly feels good i I have to say i mean look when you inch towards uh 50 i think the last few years before 50 or it's like you know you like you know it's coming now i feel like (laughs) we've removed the plaster like you know what i mean yeah i I, I do feel that way by the way because you've i think in the lead up to it you've been talking about it quite a bit it's the axe yeah it's the the axe and then you rip off that band-aid so now I actually feel like, halas, it's out there. You know what I mean? Like you've, 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 you've done it. You've come out. You've said the 50. <laughs> so, uh, which was kind of the first uh, pointer, right? I was, I was thinking of like the year that's gone by, which is the kind of the, what we try and do on these episodes. Um, and so we had, a, we had a few milestones along the way, right? So, of course, you turning 50 was pretty much a recurring theme all through the year. <laughs> Um, I distinctly remember actually on the, on the last one that we did, uh, you started by saying you're not going to show up to this one because you're going to turn true. 50 and, and that's you, true. You, were, you were done. Um, but I think the part of the 50 is that you grow more mature. You don't do the things that I would have done at 40, which is definitely not show up. <laughs> okay. That's like, good. just like, be like, more like, you know what guys like love you, but not coming. Like, yeah, I didn't do that. Um, and then also, of course we had our 75th episode. Yes. It was like a nice little, that is um, great. Milestone. That's uh, the gift. We got our first feature with Apple. So that was a That is a nice also one. a gift. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and it's been a good year. And then we were also featured by uh, an app called, an independent app called Good Pods in, in one of their categories. So, you know, quite a few things that happened all through the year that kind of reminded us why we're doing this, I think, to a degree. And to be honest, I, I get a lot of reminders throughout the year. I mean, one of the nicest things <clears throat> I think is about this podcast is, especially now that I think we've built a bit of a library, so different people have approached it over different years, frankly. I get a lot of people approaching me um, and saying, you know, I mean, I'll give you a, a live example. Last night, I went uh, to um, this shawarma spot mm-hmm. in South Barsha with my kids. And, uh, you know, the owner approached me saying, you're the guy that does the podcast. Wow. Okay. You know, it wasn't nice. the lighthouse. It wasn't, yeah. you know, it was, oh, you're the one that has this podcast, which I thought was great. So, you know, the fact that it's developed its own repetition, I've had a lot of people reach out to me <clears throat> throughout the year in personal messages, whether DMs or WhatsApps or whatnot, talking about specific episodes and how uh, they've really either enjoyed it or learned something from it or kind of, you know, it, it spurred something in them. Right. That to me, honestly, is, is probably one of the most gratifying things in terms of doing this. Because really the whole point is it's very much um, a community-driven conversation that uh, we want people to participate in. Yeah, and, it, and it's meant to drive the community back, right? That's so that's, it, it's meant to be... And it's meant to, it's meant to lift the community up. Yeah. So we are featuring, we have a platform that's enabled us to feature various members of the community, um, you know, and really lift them up, tell their story, uh, or en- enable them to tell their story, which I think is a, is a very important 
gift. So to the extent that that community of listeners and fans and so on is growing, I think that's terrific. Yeah, it is amazing. When we were talking about the outline yesterday, I kind of told you that there was something I wanted to discuss with you that happened last year that, but I, I wanted to kind of spring it on you, is you wanting to change your name. My own personal name? Yeah. It's too late. Because you came up with that more than once, right? So when uh, when you were talking to Ayman Fagusa, you know, you were talking about <laughs> Carla Otto and you were like, that's it, I'm changing my name. We're going, you know, it's, it's oh, going to be short, right? there's out there. Um, and then like literally the next episode, you're sitting with HSY and you're like, you know, I really like that. I'm going to call myself HEM from now on. So yeah, but he has know. like, I mean, I, I think the Y does it. What do you think? Oh, it's so the HSY is. Yeah, I think the Y, like if he was HS, like, I mean, I love him, but like, you know, I mean, like really, who cares, right? But like, so HM doesn't work. So I would need an HMY. Um, but I mean, who's the Y? Like, you know, like Hesham Montasser, you know, exactly. You see? Yeah. So uh, Are you worried if, so you, if you became HMY, people would just start calling look, you When you become really big, I think people give you these acronyms, right? So I'm not so. there yet. <laughs> you say so. The other thing I wanted to also bring up, because I feel like it was left unsaid during the conversation with HSY, uh, where you guys were talking about Lady Diana. Yes. Right. During the episode, you said, um, you know, I have I have a theory as to why this Lady Diana phenomenon existed. I know the phenomenon existed because my mother was obsessed with her. Yes. Uh, And there's no reason why my mother should be obsessed with her. But she was she watched every piece of news that came out about her. Uh, and now I want to know what that theory is. What, yeah, what do you, you think it was? You know, I, I don't rem- quite remember, but I can tell you a few things. I mean, I grew up similar to you. My sister was obsessed with Lady Di. I mean, my sister is uh, probably a little younger than your 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 mom. So um, Lady, yeah, I think she could kind of like, she was, you know, she was like a teenager at the time, right? right? right. So um, there were posters of Lady Di everywhere. That wedding was, you know, so it is incredible to see how at the time, this is pre-social media, how a figure can transcend boundaries the way she did, right? In places like India and Egypt. I mean, they're, okay, I mean, the only thing you can say is they're both former British colonies. So maybe there's some, but most there's people... A, I think, but the, that only explains why it was news to those communities, that's right? It doesn't explain Not why, they're why, affinity. why they're... If anything, the opposite. Yeah, if exactly. anything, you think the opposite. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's no question, um, you know, and, and, and having, you know, the crown coming back out, and I think she just won... Yes, in the Golden Globes, Best Supporting Actress, uh, the, the lady, that the actress that is that plays portraying her, yeah. Diana. Look, there's no question she had a you know magical charm. She was also super astute in terms of, I mean, she was really the first media personality, right? Yeah. Before any of those influencers, you know, stars, etc. I mean, she started all of this. And she understood that there's a relationship with the media that you have to nurture. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what my other theory is, but I am, as you may know, um, always been very fond of the Queen, um, and I have. I don't know what you're talking about, Hashim, because you've never mentioned this. Really? Uh, no, no. I'm very <laughs> fond of the Queen. In fact, on my 40th birthday, may put the Queen's face on the cake. So yeah, I mean, this is a little intense. Yeah, but that's. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. No, no. I am super fond of the Queen. Uh, I've always liked the Queen. Only the Queen. I don't like any of the other members of the royal family. I've always liked kind of her like Germanic like. Um, Stoicness. Uh, I like how she stayed classy under fire. I don't like how she's reacted to Diana. Um, there's many other things that come out historically that the funny thing is with the crown, right, is for lots of people like Radir, who are much younger, the crown becomes a historical true. reference of what happened. So yeah. they actually think of this as a story. Of course, part of it is, but part of it is fiction. Yeah. yeah so it's, it's, it's incredible. Apparently in America, 90% of, of Americans 
now know the royal family only via the crown. Yeah. So they think that is the story. And she comes across at times flattering, at times very unflattering. But I have generally found that the queen has been a very reasonable uh, figure and has um, transcended so many uh, egocentric prime ministers and beyond a few failures, which I think the main one being Diana, I think she didn't rise to the occasion. Um, she's the reason um, this royal family and probably many other royal families in Europe stayed alive because I think she, in many points in, in the, the history of the UK, people gravi gravitated towards her as kind of that point of stability. Anyway, um, here well, we go. Clearly, you... Yeah, yeah clearly. I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> yeah, um, I think also it's, uh, you know, it's the it's the almost quintessential outsider story with, with Lady Di, I mean. I think that's, I think that played a lot of, a big part, at least in the circle, I mean, I was very young, but it, in the circle I was around that were talking about it, that was the exciting part for them, right? She wasn't a, a princess or a countess or anything of that nature. She was coming in almost walking into this, you know, generational family uh, that is in the limelight all the time and kind of became the star, as you said, yes. right? Yes. Uh, and I think that had a lot to play with, with it. You almost see a parallel today when you look at what's happening with, with Meghan Markle and everything else. The only difference is now it's like now it's in the age of social media where there's a lot of... I also think she shared a genuine connection with the people. I, I can't speak for Markle or anyone else. Yeah. But I think she really did. I mean, I don't think her interest in humanity and people, especially underprivileged it people, came off as genuine. was enough. It was genuine. Yeah, it came it was, across yeah. as very, yeah. very genuine. It was, it, was, it was something people connected with. You know, yeah. and I think people connect with that. I think people see through, you know, it's not very different than social media. Someone, you know, portraying something versus kind of a more authentic self, to not overuse that word, but it's true. You see through it. And I think it's also the short term and the long term, right? So maybe in the short term, you can get away with something. But in the yes. long term, yes. over, especially with uh, at the time, as you said, when, um, you know, she was very exposed with the media all the time. Um, you can, you know, over time, you if, you, if you're not genuine about it, it, it will come out. A hundred percent. And I think this brings us to kind of a point that um, is very much runs throughout the show. Certainly when I was reviewing the shows um, and the guests we've had over this last year, you know, a lot of very authentic people um, with, you know, I mean, I think a big part of their success has been that they're true to themselves. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some of them that are slightly older, you can maybe understand that it's also kind of, you know, they've become wiser over the years, perhaps. But we've had people, their whole gamut. And whether it's Natasha definitely comes to mind or Ayman or Ayman Bayi at the beginning yeah, of the be year. Like, two Aymans this the year. Two Aymans. Yeah or Rami, or lots of people, I had a feeling when I was interviewing them that they have found a formula that makes them true to who they are, and that's really a key to their success. Yeah, and I think in some cases, it's uh, their journey is one of finding who they are as well, So they, or, or, or coming to where they need to be, right? So uh, I think you mentioned Rami. I think that was a good example where, he, you know, he knew he always wanted to be in finance, but actually discovering the path and, and what the niche was going to be. Yes. You know, he kind of, it, it evolved over time. And he is in finance in, a, uh, the way he's set up for his firm is where it's very people intensive and an area where emotional intelligence is key. Right. To, and, and that's by design. That's an area he's very, very good at. You know, and I think he's not, so finance is a vast 
business. You can do a lot of things. You can trade and be behind screens all day and not talk to anyone except for Bloomberg all day. <laughs> yeah. Um, he is in the most people-intensive part, essentially private banking, wealth management. And I think it's because he knows that's his strength or one of his strengths. And I think that's a, that's a very important point. Similar to Natasha, I mean, she brought up the fact that she doesn't look at social media because because it or or doesn't care about it or or both because it brings you down to the middle and the middle is mediocre yeah. and for her to rise above the fray she needs to stay away from it to develop her own creative energy that's very powerful yeah. very few people can say that which also ties in so i i kind of one of the things i wanted to talk about uh, for this episode was um over the last year we've had an opportunity to kind of deep dive into um, the world of entrepreneurship in a way that I think obviously the fact that we've had three years behind us allows us to do, which is to deep dive into certain areas that tend to get glossed over for the most part. If you're talking about someone's story, right? You look at a Natasha, you look at a Tom, um, they've had such successful careers and they're, they're kind of at inflection points themselves, right? They've, they've reached this, this phase where if you actually trace their journey, I mean, that's two hours worth of conversation. So it's very right. hard to get deeper into what's happening. Um, and so I think uh, there were certain themes that came out of that, right? The first one I wanted to talk about was loneliness, which for me has been a very, um, so just a little bit of backstory here. Uh, someone in, in my former life of corporate life, so to speak, uh, who became a mentor to me was a guy named Cyril. Uh, it's one of the things he told me when I started down this path. And he said, entrepreneurship is a very lonely business. Uh, if you ever need someone, give me a call. Um, and I was like, what are you talking about? I mean, I've got people around me. So I'm not alone, right? I'm not by myself, that kind of thing. Um, and it took the pandemic actually for me to really, really understand what that meant, where everything kind of just boiled down to me coming up with, I, I didn't have anybody to go to, yeah. to kind of relate to whatever. It doesn't matter how many conversations I was having. Correct. And I had a lot of them. Um, it didn't matter because ultimately it was on my head to go deal with whatever it was. Um, and so we kind of touched on that this this year with, uh, I mean, Tom comes to mind because I think you mentioned him. Does it get lonely? And what do you do about it? Are you, do you have a peer group? Do you have like a therapist on demand? I mean, what, what's, <laughs> what's, what's the trick? I got very lucky. I had great, I have great partners. Mm. Simple as that. Yeah. My, my partners are amazing. When things are not going well, um, or, or if, you, you know, if you're, you're down on a budget or something like that, it's like, you know, they, they expect you to work damn hard, you know? Yeah, essentially, you're a, I'm an MD or a CEO of a business. Yes, yes, yes. It's your uh, responsibility it's, it's, yeah, to I, make I, it work. You know, if, if, it's, if I'm not the guy, then who is? There's no way around it, like you said. I mean, I think uh, entrepreneurship is, is very, very low, a very lonely business. Um, in my case, I am lucky to have a co-founder. So having Hany, I think, helps a lot. But ultimately, I still bear responsibility for a lot of the things I have to do every day. And that's a lonely place to be. Yeah. Um, I think to your point, you have to remember to reach out. And I think this podcast to me has helped certainly that because these conversations, at least speak for myself, help remind me yeah. that it's, you're not alone doing this. And it sounds a little indulgent because people are like, if you're running your own business, that's a, like for you, for you or for me or many of the people featured, that's a great thing. True. But, um, you know, the responsibilities, I think, and the pressure you put on yourself, make it lonely. Um, and I think it's not easy to always talk about it because it looks so indulgent. It's easy to, if you're in a corporate office, to go and complain about the boss to your coworker. Sure. Or say, I don't like working here. Or, you know, this person is. 
But I think when you're making your own decisions, it's hard to come and say like, you know, this is difficult or this is hard or this is too much pressure because people are kind of in their mind, they're like, well, you can change that. Yeah. But it's not that obvious. I mean, no, you, you brought Tom. I mean, you know, if you are opening five, six, seven, eight, nine locations, it's not that's going to autopilot. You have no choice. You have yeah. to see this through now. And there's a lot of pressure. So I'm glad it's something we talked about. And I think we generally don't shy away from talking about mental health in this, um, in this podcast. And I think it's very important. Uh, I've spoken very openly about it, um, that I think most people look at mental health, unfortunately, still, certainly in the Arab world. And certainly Arab males, especially, uh, and not only Arabs. I'm just using Arabs because I am one, so it's easier to I can say Indian. No, males, I, I would say I would say Indian males. Stone, right? No, but I, I would I would add Indian males to this too. I think it's it's the culture is very similar. Yeah, from cultures, cultures where I think. Uh, you know, we're very societally societally driven and yes. family driven. So, so Asian culture so is very similar. It's, it's hard to uh, it's hard to become reflective of your of yourself and say I'm going to go work on myself. Yes. In the midst of all of it, because you're. No, it's also seen as a weakness. And it's seen as a weakness. It's seen yeah. as a weakness, frankly. So it's yeah. not seen as an encouraging thing. It's seen as a weakness. I mean, most people, if they go and tell their wives, let's just say I'm going to go see a therapist, it's like something's if wrong. There's something wrong. It's, with a, it's you. a concern. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm so glad. I look at it honestly 100% as preventive uh, maintenance. 100%. It's actually self-maintenance. So it's exactly the same way, you know, not to be gross, but like at 50, you go get a colonoscopy, you know, <laughs> it's preventative. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, I need to use that example. Yeah, no. But but, but I, I would even relate it to like the fact that you say, eat right, go exercise every day or whatever is, exactly. is meant to be preventive things that you take, you do yeah. for yourself physically. I don't want to get a stroke. I don't want to have same, diabetes. The so I go exercise. Applies, the same thing. Exactly same thing but very yeah. few people think of it that yeah, way. Yeah. No, no, hundred percent. And I think um, we have actually, you're right. We have talked about it over the years. I think it's come up, but that it's been, um, it's it's come up a little bit organically, and I think this time now we have an opportunity to kind of dig into it a little bit more. Um, so so it's good that we're quantifying it a little bit better, is what I'm trying to say. I think we have touched on it, of course, in the past. We spoke about it during COVID, yeah. which which was very obvious, you know, clearly people. But you know, there's also an under underlying thing, certainly in this part of the world, that we don't talk about too much. But you know, I think over the last couple of months, with what's happening in Gaza. I think there is a heaviness um, and many of us, including myself, don't have uh, family in Palestine or in Gaza. So I'm not directly affected as such. So it again, feels a bit indulgent to talk about it because there are people that are suffering far more, but it has created, I think, a heaviness and a certain cloud that many of us walk with every day. Uh, yeah. There's no question about it. Um, and I think that is also weighs on a lot of people uh, who are obviously weighs on, on anyone that is Palestinian of Palestinian descent, but also weighs on a lot of people that have friends that are Palestinians or, you know, Palestinian descent or have heard of stories or just watch social media and the news. Right. And, and you know, like I, I recognize, for example, at the end of each year for the last couple of years, because the year is exciting, but also very intense. Mm -hmm. By the last week, usually I'm sort of a bit depleted yeah. and my nervous system becomes very jumpy and I find myself constantly scrolling, unable to. So I want to be productive, but I'm not able to. And it's like, you know, you're trying to beat somebody with a stick mm -hmm. and I, it takes me usually a day or two to realize, you know what, there's nothing there anymore. Yeah. There's no juice. I need to Just take time off. Yeah. Need to take this week or 10 days or whatever it is, or even a weekend sometimes off. I really switch off. Don't use social media. Try to do something that's a bit more long form, 
whether it's exercise, reading a book, or listening to a podcast, frankly, which is very long form. I mean, Jeff Bezos spoke about this. I don't know if you've if, if listened to this episode um, with, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Lex Friedman. With Lex Friedman. He said, you know, um, so reading and long form podcasts are an antidote to ADHD and sort of, short, mm. you know, short term. And I think he's absolutely right. Think about how you feel if you would listen to two and a half hours uh, acquired so, uh, or read a book versus when you scroll on like 50, Instagram for like 50 reels in, in five minutes, well, not, exactly, not quite 50 reels, exactly. it, but whatever. or like my daughter, like, you know, YouTube shorts, YouTube shorts. Yeah, you know? Like, so, you know what I mean? That antidote. Yeah. So I think because we know we won't stop scrolling. Um, I actually like this antidote idea that you build something else in your day that balances offsets it out. It out yeah. Whatever, yeah. Offsets it out. It's a more realistic aim than saying, I'm not going to do it, to me at least. You know, remove it from my phone or whatever. I mean, that's extreme if you really feel you you're really have a, a, more of an addiction. But I think everybody knows now we're all addicted. You talk about uh, the fear of failure this year a little bit more. Um, I don't want to say a little bit more openly because that's not true. You, you have been talking about it, but, but a little bit more pointedly. Right? More so, defined, yeah. yeah. More defined again. Um, and then it comes to, I think, uh, I think you were also, uh, it, it sort of triggered off from the, your conversation with HSY where he, he kind of opened with that, right? Where he, he's actually- I have zero, zero, zero fear, fear of fear of failure, failure yeah. which I think was such a like quote. It stayed with me for a couple of weeks. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think- it's interesting that when he, when he recounts his story, which is very very difficult, yes, and and harrowing, and I I know in the room like I yeah. can't say the air was sucked up. No, there was, was a, no, there was a gasp. I mean, no question about yeah. it. And, it was like and, oh. But I think all of that taught me something. It taught me the importance of not just resilience, but really savoring what zero feels like, what what absolute zero feels like. Mm. Um, and I think when you're accustomed to the taste of what zero feels like and you've seen it, mm. what do we fear? We fear the unknown. But when you know it, then why should you fear that's it? That's very interesting. I was having this conversation a couple of days ago, uh, and that's what the person said. He said, you know, I have not grown up in an I, I've grown up in a very stable environment where, where your job, and, and you actually brought this up, um, you know, that people who grew up having an entrepreneur around you uh, changes your mindset a little bit because you you kind of see that and that's exactly what this person told me and it kind of linked uh where they said yeah but you know your dad has taken had taken risks when you were a child so for you you're built with a certain amount of resilience and tolerance to yeah. that uh, that you don't mind if even things are a little yes. on the edge for a bit yes. you know that there is uh, something on the other side that you can, that you're working towards whereas I, I don't understand that. So, yeah. I, and I think that's super interesting. I fully relate to that. I mean, my parents were professors, uh, as we've said before on the show. So certainly entrepreneurship in that sense was really not part of the DNA. Uh, so for me to go out on limb, that was terrifying. And that's why I bring this up so many times. Uh, and I waited, I waited to do it as a second career for that reason, right? Mm -hmm. I frankly, I didn't think about it at the time, but I frankly don't think I really was ready to do it kind of, I mean, I did try. I went to the first wave of the startups in New York um, in 2000 and it failed and I wound up going to business school. Right. So I had a glimpse because I think I was toying with the idea. But when that didn't work, I immediately went back to a stablekeeper corporate job and stayed there for 10 years, right? right. So now I realize, so it was kind of like, let me try. But then I was like, oh, this is really risky. And I switched back. So I completely understand and I think, 
to your point, uh, HSY is a very interesting example because obviously he's somebody's literally hit rock bottom at a very young age. So I can, so this is very, very unique. For most people that have actually had that stability, uh, it's the opposite. It's because of that stability that you're so unwilling to take risks. Um, and uh, it doesn't mean that everyone that's grown up with an entrepreneur's house is comfortable with that, but I think more so, Yeah, more so. Um, but I think that fear of failure is a very complex uh, thought process. Difficult to eliminate even as you get more successful, uh, if that makes any sense. So, yeah. so I think that um, it's a fuel and it can be not a bad fuel necessarily, um, but and it disciplines you and disciplines the mind, but it can also paralyze. So I bring it up a lot on the show because I... I'm very curious to see how different people deal with it. We spoke to HSY about it. We spoke to Tom Arnell about it. We spoke to Muhammad Maktabi about it. Yeah. We spoke to Ayman Fausa about it. So we spoke to quite a few yeah, people. Ayman Baki as well. I mean, we Ayman were Baki in the beginning. The exactly. And, exactly. And kind of what it means to expand. I mean, in the, we'll use this example because I think it's a good one, right? In the concept of restaurants, especially which are very uh, physical spaces and therefore there's a lot on the line compared to something that's a little bit digital. Not that. That, that's that's any that's easier necessarily but uh but this idea of saying you know if you're just opening these new concepts uh, what happens when one of your ideas doesn't work right yeah. do you can you backdrop how do you deal with something like that uh, and as you said does it paralyze you the fact that you can get even as you said even as you taste success and again whatever that metric of success is and it can just be a good venue and, yes. and a, a, a profitable venue and, and saying sorry to interrupt you with this restaurant metric i mean danny meyer from Unisquare Cafe or Unisquare Hospitality, yeah. said this uh, in one of his podcasts, that when he was younger, he would keep fighting tooth and nail to keep any restaurant open because he right. thought closing it as a failure. As he grew older, he learned that success meant opening, realizing quickly it's not working, closing yeah. and moving on. And that became one of his metrics of success for him versus, and I can completely relate to this, is, you know, like... Um, the initial feelings like, oh, it didn't work, it's a failure. Your success and your obligation, in fact, to your shareholders and yourself is to recognize that certain things in your business, whether it's restaurants or others, is not working to quickly move on to other things. Um, it's like you discovering a new business line for podcasts and saying this could be a revenue stream for me, trying it out and then seeing, for example, it's not getting traction. One is that you keep beating it, you know, for the next... No, I, I can actually take a show as a good example of that, right? Uh, a show that isn't working, that exactly. isn't reaching an That's audience. A very good example. trying to like just keep plugging. I mean, there is, uh, there is a case to be made that perhaps it's worth plugging, it's worth changing, let's say, marketing or something, strategy around it. But at some point you have to realize like, you know what, actually, I think this has reached the end of its life, whatever that might be, and I've got to call it off. Uh, for me, it took the pandemic to kind of reset that because up to that point, I was, it's fine, we'll just keep going. Um, but uh, when I had a constraint, the pandemic being the constraint to say, hey, my, you know, the recording quality has changed, my ability to fund this stuff has changed, uh, then that's when you have to sit down and say, okay, it's time to make the tough calls, right? And I think the key here talking to podcasts, for me, those that do it for the right reasons yeah, and the right 100%. reasons being a real interest in the subject matter, genuine curiosity, yeah. I think have a much higher chance to succeed even if it takes a long time. Again, going back to the acquireds of the world, these guys had this niche show that's two, two and a half, three hours sometimes for years, right? People yeah. don't realize. And very few listeners. And now it, and then it went to cult. And now it's gone now from it's cult gone to, to yeah, yeah. more or less mainstream. 
Um, you know, All In is another good example. I mean, I mean they've the, been around for a decade. Yeah, All, all decades, In, all in right? is a little like different because obviously uh, they're all kind of all well-known names. Yeah. But again, it started kind of very much VC culty and then went mainstream. And I think the interest here that all of those shows have in common is they there's genuine curiosity. If you're doing a podcast, and this is maybe advice for those out there that care, for the wrong reasons, meaning you want to become famous, you want to make money out of the podcast. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making money out of it, but I think if that's your first and only goal, um, I think it's not going to work. You need to be, and I think if you're trying to bring guests on that note, it's also not going to work. Yeah, I, you I need mean, a I, genuine interest in your guests. It I, shows I, immediately. I, I say this to people because we, I, I do run into them asking for advice. Uh, this is the thing: the guests are never going to drive your show for you. No, they, they can bring a little. That's bump. a very important lesson. They can bring a bump to you. That's. Yes. I, I'm not saying you don't do it because I think. No. Select your guests in the way that works. But if the guests don't align with what you're trying to do with the show, exactly right. uh, you know, people will, because that's literally what will happen. People will come in because they want to hear from X person, whoever that person is, uh, and then leave because yes. they have no interest in anything else uh, that your show is providing them. So unless you can do that well, uh, and it takes a decent amount of work and it takes um, going back to, like you said, going back to that purpose or what are you trying to do with the show? Uh, it, it matters a lot. Yeah, and I see in my own, the show selection, I have, I would say, probably 10 shows that I listen to religiously. They're all driven by the host. Yeah. And then I have 10 shows where I go in and out because they bring guests they bring really good that guests. I like, but yeah. I'm coming for the guest. Yeah. And the moment the guest leaves, I don't go back to that show. Uh, and then uh, the last thing uh, that I want to talk about is this concept of legacy, which I think is very interesting. Uh just in general, but also because of the range that we've been talking about. So uh, we've mentioned already, we've mentioned Ivan Baki, we mentioned Tom Arnell, Natasha, uh, all of these, they're what we'll call first generation businesses for, for the purpose of this conversation, uh, where they have come up with this idea and it's taken off, right? So they're, they've reached some metric of success. Uh, and then how do they start thinking about their company beyond themselves, right? So either what happens after they leave or what happens even today as they're starting to detach a little bit more I know you spoke to me yesterday about starting to kind of redefine your role a little bit and figure out how to move forward. Uh, but then on the other side, we've got these like, like the more Maktabi, the yeah. cash gallery kind of businesses that are they're generational you know, family they're businesses, second or third generation businesses. And how one, I think for me, that's a very fascinating thing by itself, right? This, this idea of a business getting handed down from generation to generation and, and continuing to, to live on. Yeah. In Nakash Gallery, you had, uh, today they are the second generation of the businesses start, is entrenched in the business. And both the kids have very differing views about how they want to see their kids involved with them. I, I just have a son now, one and a half Congratulations. year old. Congratulations. Thank you. I, don't, I, I'm, I doubt I would encourage him to be in a family business. Why? It's, it's tough to see your father as a boss. Mm. There's some things that happen that you don't want your son to see. I'm, uh, I love my father. I love my boss. Yes. But, uh, no, I, I think that's very wise. Yeah, and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not necessary. Yeah. I feel. What about you, Aya? I also have a two-year-old, you know, yes. so she's still very young, <laughs> and she loves football. <laughs> so yeah. no, no, at this point, I'm, I'm putting her in football camp. I mean, but hypothetically, would you encourage it or discourage it? Let's I would it encourage this. it, but you I would. would also encourage her to work outside first, and then, you know, if she wants to join, ahla sahla, and if not, go do your own thing. Okay. I thought that was fascinating, and I give them a lot of credit for coming on the show and um, and talking about it so openly. Yeah. I really think that that is a very interesting show. And a very 
you know, underrated thing to do in a sense yes. of putting yourself out there because anything can be said and, you know, family dynamics are delicate. No, and I think it was nice because they, they actually shared what they were thinking, which was, yes. they didn't agree on everything, by the way. The, of course you know, not. Uh, and, and I think that was nice to get those different perspectives of how they see that, that going through. But again, this idea of legacy, uh, I, I spoke about my mentor, Sarah One of the first books he recommended to me was a book called Good to Great. Uh, by Jim Collins, right? And the, the the entire book is about how does a business outlive a generation, yes. right? Um, which is fascinating, right? And he tries to account, he tries to scientifically quantify that, which is in and of itself fascinating. But you see these businesses starting out because someone had an idea or they saw an opportunity and suddenly it's this, it's not, you know, it's not a conglomerate, no, but yet it is a business that has lasted 70, 80, 90 years. It's very difficult. I think the answer is very difficult. How does it outlive a founder? Mm -hmm. And how do you keep family businesses alive, especially ones that are in the public realm? Um, you know, that are publicly traded uh, companies. Private companies is a little bit more room because you don't exactly know the metrics. Yeah, yeah. I think with publicly traded companies, companies like LVMH, for example, sure. that's a very difficult thing, um, you know, or, um, you know, um, um, the Murdochs, you know, uh, News Corp, a couple of others come to mind. You know, I mean, there's a very famous story of, of you know, the story of Summer Redstone, you know, who has a media company um, in the U.S. that's become very large. And then, you know, as he got older, his daughter got involved, Cherry Redstone. Yes, and yeah, it's yeah, a very yeah. long, you know, there's a whole book about this. And those transitions are very bumpy. There can be. So it's it's a very complicated thing. Um, and then I think the key question to me here is how do you instill certain qualities in the business that outlast founders or outlast the first generation? Uh, uh, because if the value system is there, the second and third generation can then take that and reinvent, but it has to be a very strong foundation. You know, you look at Bill Gates. Yeah. He left Microsoft. There was a bump, well, quite a large bump yeah, with Balmer for yeah, all the yeah. obvious reasons, which yeah. I don't want to get into. You can YouTube Balmer and you'll see what he does on, on stage. This is where we go developers. <laughs> exactly. develop. anyway. And then, you know, you get the Satya Nadella uh, uh, era where Microsoft was reinvented yeah. under I mean, new leadership. Be, but I think that's the important part. It had to be reinvented. Because but with a very strong continue. base. Yeah. I think that the base was there. And in fact... Bill Gates came back on the board for a few years to help Satya. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it, the results speak for themselves. Yeah. You know, one of the most valuable companies in the world. So it's actually a very, very interesting uh, process. Um, we spent a little bit of time this year as a lighthouse going into our values and strategy. And it was fascinating to go around the room and hear different people talk about what does this brand represent. Yeah. And we came up with some very interesting findings, uh, which we can discuss at a different time. Um, one other thought I had not related to this that I wanted to bring up uh, as I was scrolling through the list of guests we had last year, and this is, I think, particularly important to me as an Egyptian. We had a couple of Egyptian guests. Um, we had Mohammed Shahed, we had Maidib. Both had um, books out that talked about Egypt, yeah. right? So one was about architectural, um, uh, different, arch uh, diff different buildings and their architecture in Cairo. And uh, May's book was a little bit more um, glossy in a sense, but which I need to add here that if you're seeing us on video, it's right behind Hashim at this point. Yeah, yeah exactly, right exactly. So Cairo about Cairo from Asoline, and you know, it struck me as interesting that um, there is this element. I think when these books come out, partially there's always these books, 
but they're trying to preserve something about Cairo and Egypt specifically, precisely because the country is going through such a hard, diff difficult time. And I think you see this a lot in transitions that a generation, including because they're both part of my generation, roughly, sure. um, are trying to hold on to particular traits yeah. of a city um, as they see it very quickly transitioning to something else. And I'm not saying that the something else that it's transitioning to is negative, but I think when it's unclear, which in the case of Cairo or Egypt it is right now, that really uh, provokes a sense of like, hold on to what you have, what they call the good old days. And I think that's fascinating. Um, like you see less of that in Dubai, because I think people feel very strongly that the future is very bright. Sure. And that the development process is furious. So you don't have the need. Some people I'm sure that grew up in Dubai might, and you might think that, I don't know. But like this need to kind of hold on to the past as much. Yeah, I think I think the difference is the the, the holding down is not as as harsh, right? So correct. Uh, you have people that obviously, and we see this all the time, right? You have uh, all these photos that come out of Dubai from the '90s and stuff. I follow an account. I saw because I grew up in Abu Dhabi. I follow an account called Abu Dhabi Memories on Instagram, and they post these pictures of yeah. Abu Dhabi from the '90s with the old like white and whatever that brown color was cabs and and that that kind of stuff, right? And that, <laughs> that like switch around meter that they used to have. Anyway, but uh, I think there. But but you're right that uh, because the the belief in the future is very bright and because those are they're good memories, but we don't feel the need to say I've got to preserve them to a point that somebody doesn't like mess with that. Yes. Um, whereas I think when you talk about Cairo I think or Beirut, Beirut even more stark in the sense of the explosion. Yeah. And this came up in our meetings, uh, in our interviews that you know we had two guests, uh, Mariana Wahba and Mohammed Maktabi. Yes. That left because of the explosion. I, I think that's it's so interesting for me as an uh, bit of an outsider in the sense as an observer of this is there's a there's a contrast between the approaches that people from Cairo take and the people from from Beirut take right where it's because perhaps the the circumstances are very yes. different yes they are um you you see as you said both of them left Beirut they still want to see how they can contribute yes but they're not what you talk about the nostalgia and trying to preserve they're trying to do it but elsewhere Yes. Right. And I think well, although in the case of Mariana, which is very interesting, it's not only elsewhere. Right. So she's that's going back yeah. to hold a design fair. And that's a very interesting approach. So, again, that brings back this preservation. Yeah. Right. Of what we have, the old, let's hold on to it. And then there is like, it is what it is. Let's make the most of it and still bring out beauty and strength and excellence within what is essentially a very chaotic situation. Nada Dibs is a good example there yes. because she's yes. done a lot of work there. Bogja is a nice one yes. where, where they've kept some of the traditional art forms alive through uh, a modern design company. Yes, right? Um, so so there, is, there is space for that. Uh, going back a little bit also to the legacy thing because I think it, it kind of ties in a little bit to this, which is um, how do you preserve it in art forms that are not of the era, so to speak, right? So Mo Maktabi is a good example where he's, we're talking about carpets and carpets are not to, today's new interesting thing anymore, right? Yeah. Yes, they, they're, they exist. He, in, they're reimagining it, right? They're, they're, they're working to how to yeah. reimagine it so that the next generation yeah. might yeah. maintain interest. Yeah. Uh, you talked just now about uh, Mariana and, and Lebanon and doing a design fair. It's, it's going back and saying, I want to bring the limelight back to these artisans and designers who, you know, they're uh, decades old, uh, forms of whatever the artwork or artisan work it is, uh, how do I preserve that and showcase it to a generation that is 
you know, to, like what I'm trying to get yeah. at is like today yeah, yeah. We're, we're talking about a world of tech and, and AI and, and all of these ex other exciting things that are happening where everybody's focusing on. And then you have these like traditional art forms that are we're still trying to bring out and, and, and keep in the limelight. And I think it's harder when you are, you know, we were talking about like a fourth generation business trying to look at that and still have an interest yeah. in preserving it and reimagining it. And this is one of the goals for this upcoming year. If we talk about this for a minute, I mean, for me personally, one of the uh, one of the interesting things is is um, um, as the lighthouse um, looks contemplates moving into Saudi Arabia, uh, I find myself spending more time in Riyadh, especially. And Riyadh will be a fascinating specimen uh, in this sense like because it sits somewhere between the Beiruts and the Cairo's and the Dubai's. And I'm hoping that we will get a few um, players there to come on the show. And I think we will see a little bit of both. You know, there's uh, a lot more of the old, but there's also a lot more the of, of the, the new, new and the beginning yeah. of the new. Yeah. And I think that would be fascinating. And I think that's a flavor that we'd like to bring, um, both to kind of have some underground shows or uh, shows with some of the people that, that live there, their experience, but also give a slightly more um, realistic version to what's happening there to people that live in Dubai and Egypt and other places, because I think there's so much out there about Riyadh currently that it's very hard to dissect, you know, what's fiction, what's reality. Sure. And I think that that would be a fun, one fun element to do. When, when Ayman was on the show, you guys talked about uh, Saudi and Riyadh in particular, I think being the Dubai of the 90s, right? Like getting that kind of feeling yes, with the place there is that. where that, yes, th there's a sure. transition happening like yes. right now. Yes. Whereas I think Dubai in some ways is a little bit settled on, on some of those things. It's become that, settled. Yeah. I mean, kudos to them. Yeah. You know, that Dubai today looks like a, you know, settled, you know, like mature city. Yeah. It's incredible. It's, it's crazy. In a very short amount of time. Very, very short amount of time. Yeah. It's incredible. Like literally, it's one generation, right? Like that's literally, yeah, yeah, within, yeah. within a generation rather. And you know, maybe kind of as one of the concluding points for me again. We made this point before um, when we spoke to people like uh, Sam Qadam and others that kind of work for the government here in Dubai and represent Dubai's ambitions. But you know, when I looked again on our show and the people, the fact that most of those, most of our show uh, guests were here physically present because not not all of them live in Dubai is a testament that everybody now passes through Dubai yeah. and to the wealth of um, the, the activity it's it's created uh, over these last couple of years, which enables a show, makes a show like this very easy, yeah. right? I mean, it's very easy for us to basically fish guests as they come and, and, and shine a light on them because so many interesting people pass through the doors. Uh, that's really a tribute to to what Dubai's built. I mean, it's in many ways become a capital uh, for the Middle East. Um, and I think that's, even as Riyadh and others come in, I think that role will only be solidified. So you talked, uh, when you were talking about Microsoft, right? It's even when there is a reimagination happening, it's built on a foundation. I think for the region, Dubai has kind of provided a bit of a foundation for, for all of that to happen both the trials and the tribulations, right? So it's not only all Sorry. success, it's also we've learned from certain things that have 100%. happened. We know what works and doesn't work in the region because of what's happened in Dubai, where we have access to this very um, uh, cosmopolitan, yeah. exciting, uh, you, you know, you can tap into so many different diverse, kind of diverse audiences. people, yeah. Um, and kind of how they, and of course, I mean, we can we can talk a lot about this, but I think that documentation, which is something we we touched on last year, uh, is exciting for us as we as we put the show together and and continue to talk to all of these exciting people, um, and then yeah, and then we hope to keep 
deep diving into some of these areas that are, um, I, I think, quite powerful and very inspirational. Yeah, lots of learning. So, um, so yeah, so that's that's our review for 2023. Thank you, Chirag. Thank you for... Uh, Pleasure. Um, you know, I want to just end on that note to say that yesterday when I asked you, how are you doing? You said, I'm doing, I think you said I'm doing well. I'm doing good, yes. I'm doing good. Yeah. Which threw me off for the rest of the lunch because my typical default is not, not bad. bad. Yeah. So I feel like, you know, we're starting the year on a very optimistic note. Well, there you go. Um, Ghadir, you need to kind of keep count on that, how long that lasts. So now he's smiling. He's no longer saying not bad. He's kind of in like, you know, Yeah. So let's just see uh, if, you know, we have a year. It's going to be a long year to see if that lasts. And if not, we have to call him out on it. I think it's important. Yeah, okay. I think one of the things definitely I'm doing this year is I'm going to keep myself mic'd up uh, as we record so that when you do defer to me and stuff, at least my response can be like... Documented. No, this has nothing to do with it. We're talking about the, 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 the deflect. We're talking about the mental state here, not I about like the quality of what you're saying. I mean, you're either cheerful, which is a new you, which is a bit startling and slightly annoying, but I mean, I'm going with it. Or the old you, which was frankly, was, you know, a little more like um, subdued, which I kind of got to know. So I'm just going with it. And I put on my outfit today kind of in recognition of that. Oh, new, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the reason. Partially, okay. you know, it's also like, you know, the, the kind of end of year show. So yeah. I needed to look the part. Um, let's see where it goes. But uh, I'm very excited about what's to come. Thank you. Thanks, Ashim.
that lasts. And if not, we have to call him out on it. I think it's important.